Good evening, everyone. This week, we return to talking about the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that big book that basically every psychiatrist was using by this point. The last time we talked about the DSM, we were on the third version, following the adventures of Robert Spitzer navigating constant drama and controversy as he remade the DSM. But as you may recall, the DSM-3 was eventually hailed as a necessary and positive development, so much so that when the next version, the DSM-4, was created and released, it was hardly of interest to anybody. It was released to pretty much no fanfare in 1994, and folks just switched over to the new version once it was released. However, the fifth version was a very different story, a story that we will start today. In 2006, the American Psychiatric Association created a new task force to begin work on the DSM-5. By the 2000s, the internet and social media not only existed, but were becoming fairly mainstream, and it allowed for the amplification of individual voices and also a broader expectation of transparency and information being available. In the 70s, it may have been acceptable for the creation of the new DSM to take place behind closed doors, but this was the 21st century, and that was not good enough anymore. Like in the 70s, there were anti-psychiatry activists, but now they could spread their ideas farther than ever before. These usual suspects were then also joined by folks who I see as much more legitimate, patient advocacy groups that were concerned about how exactly changes would be made and how they would be affected. The National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, Autism Speaks, Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention all wanted to know more about what changes exactly were being made to the DSM, and accordingly how that would affect them, which I think seems pretty fair. After all, any changes made to the DSM could have downstream effects on, well, everybody. The American Psychiatric Association, in a classic big old organization kind of move, did not immediately change with the times, and basically did not respond to these critiques sitting out there on the internet. Whether out of ignorance or disagreement, this lack of response made them look bad. They seemed either out of touch, or that they didn't care, and neither is a good look. But ultimately, the American Psychiatric Association could ignore a bunch of people criticizing them on the internet, until two very prominent people got involved. The first was Alan Francis, which is not a name you will recognize from this podcast because we haven't mentioned him yet. Like I said, the DSM-4's publication was pretty uninteresting, but Francis is actually the one who chaired its creation, which is the role that Spitzer played in creating the DSM-3, so Francis is actually pretty important. But the second prominent critic was actually Robert Spitzer himself, who was still alive and pretty unhappy with how things were going. But for the DSM-5, two new folks were put in charge, named David Kupfer and Daryl Regeer. Unsurprisingly, Spitzer and Francis were still interested in staying involved. So in 2007, one year after work on the DSM-5 officially began, Spitzer sent a quick message to Regeer asking if he could get a copy of their meeting minutes. He was told that he could get them later, and then heard nothing for a few months. Spitzer did the nice thing and followed up, and still heard nothing. Finally, over a year after his initial ask, Spitzer was told the meeting notes could not be released, not even to him, one of the original architects of the project as a whole, and definitely not released to the public. Now, firstly, this was, of course, a bit of a personal snub, but on top of that, it was a very different approach from that of Spitzer's, 
who had tried very hard to be transparent about his creation process, even to his critics. Francis had followed in Spitzer's footsteps, also believing transparency to be the right thing to do. Spitzer was deeply concerned about this lack of transparency, believing it would call into question the legitimacy and the quality of the new version of the DSM, which nobody wanted. In a move that was not expected at the time, but would probably be pretty obvious now, Spitzer got on his computer and started complaining on the internet. And it turns out Spitzer, with his fame in the field, and clearly some form of charisma, was pretty good at complaining on the internet. He and Francis wrote articles and open letters, arguing that this secrecy surrounding the DSM-5 was a terrible idea, and urged that everything be opened up not just to other psychiatrists, but even to the public. Different organizations began to take sides, and I see the arguments both ways, although I lean towards agreeing with Spitzer. Transparency could give legitimacy, and I think prompt healthy debate that would lead to better decisions. However, as we all know now in 2021, letting the internet in on anything can be very chaotic, and it might be easier and a lot faster to work without bloggers and Facebookers constantly scrutinizing and criticizing your every move. This little civil war between prominent psychiatrists quickly captured media attention, and for years the DSM-5 would come up in the news. From 2008 until 2013, over five years, about 3,000 articles were written in newspapers and online outlets, an average of about two a day, which I think doesn't sound like that much, but is quite a bit for a very obscure and scientific topic. Not since the 1970s had the American Psychiatric Association felt this kind of pressure, and next week we're going to talk about what they do about it. As always, thanks for listening. Feel free to contact me with the links in the show notes, and thanks, of course, to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for this music.